That may not. Um, just lately, it, it, it feels increasingly odd for me to step in the midst of anybody and be five feet above them. I, I just don't like what that represents, especially when I consider what I'm trying to unpack here today. I, I'm, I want in every way possible to try to articulate, man, I am with you. <laughs> I'm so not five feet above you. <laughs> and I'll give you another heads up. Um, I won't give any details, but I'm an emotional mess lately. And, and most people who know me don't know when I'm an emotional mess because apparently I have uh, CRF, confident resting face. But I'm a mess emotionally. And it's been magnified just being here with you, uh, bumping into half, dozen, ten people, and in just moments hearing little bits and pieces of where you are in the journey. And it's tough. And then as we're praying for your body and praying for your leadership and praying for the steps ahead, I'm just overwhelmed with how much I've fallen in love with this crazy place. So, just wanted to give you a heads up because I have no idea. I, I know the truth that I'm hoping to bring across, but the way it comes out, I have no idea. And I make no apologies in advance, okay? just so we're straight. But as usual, we've got a lot of ground to cover. So even though a lot of seminary profs, Dr. Arnold included, would say the pastor shouldn't start sermons this way, I'm just going to jump right into where we are in our study in the book of Luke. And, and today we're going to cover the end of chapter 9, starting in verse 51. And, and while you're turning there, or while you're swiping there, I want to mention today we hit a really crucial point in Luke's report which I believe means we hit a crucial point in human history, which I believe means we hit a crucial point in eternity. And it's in verse 51 where we see, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up. That points ahead to what people in older school, more traditional churches celebrate as the ascension. It was the climax of one particular day of Pentecost, the day the Holy Spirit was unleashed for a permanent, constant ministry like he had never had before and still has today. It was what Jesus hinted at when he shocked his first followers by telling them and us, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, I've been dissecting that verse for months, and I am more convinced than ever that as awesome as we may think it would be if Jesus were here in person with us, his followers actually have it better because the Holy Spirit is here and is actually in us. Now, where we are in Luke, the Holy Spirit's new ministry was tantalizingly close as the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up. 
And as Luke reported, people around him noticed something new about Jesus as he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The Olympics gave countless illustrations of what it means to set your face. Sprinters, swimmers staring down their lanes. I mean, those, those divers out at the end of the platform just staring out. And you got the gymnast with, with, with eyes just locked on the vault 25 yards away. And man, we saw it. We saw set face after set face. And we saw those faces super close and in super HD. And I'm not minimizing any competition or medal, but reading the story 2,000 years down the road, we know Jesus was on his way to something with eternal implications. So he would have been immeasurably more intense than any Olympic athlete could be as he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, technically, his face was set on a cross just outside of Jerusalem. Uh, Some unthinkable things had to happen in Jerusalem to get him out to and hung on that cross. Now, if this were an old western any old Western fans? Or my kind? Oh, yay! We're not alone, and we're fighting an uphill battle against sci-fi. But hang in there. <laughs> if this were an old Western, this verse in Luke would be describing the point in the movie where the hero faces the villain. So you got to kind of think Dodge City, right? You got to think Main Street. You got to think tumbleweeds blowing down a dusty road and the the sound of spurs clanking as the hero takes his place and casts that steely stare down the street. Bringing that imagery to this scene in Luke, we encounter a key difference in the way most people think. See, Hollywood programmed us to think good guys in white and bad guys in black, right? Truth is, thanks to what happened in Eden, Jesus is the only one who was ever born into an earth suit that would be white. All the rest of us were born in black. As adorable as all humanoids may be at birth, the Bible is extremely literal when it says, none is righteous, a.k.a. good. No, not one. And and that stands in stark contrast to some of the main views our culture has been permeated with. And, And many, if not most people, think people are good at the core, but some are made bad over time, and some are made worse than others over time. Many think they can do enough good to to counterbalance the bad they do. And many have been lured into some form of what I call the better-than mentality. As in, well, I'm better than I used to be. Or we see what's on the news or on Facebook and we subtly think, well, at least I'm better than that hot mess. I'm more convinced than ever it takes the work of the Holy Spirit for anyone to begin to admit the truth of the words of one of the greatest biblical prophets. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous, a.k.a. good deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags. 
But what Jesus did is the only cure for that. And Paul captured the transition from the problem to the solution, from black to white, if you will. And he pointed out that that once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when Christ was raised from the dead. God saved you by His grace when you believed that. And and where we are here in Luke, Jesus was taking crucial steps toward delivering that grace as He set His face toward Jerusalem. Now, as He headed out, Jesus sent messengers ahead of Him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for Him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, up to this point in the story, the majority of Jesus' ministry had been in in northern Israel, mostly in Galilee. That's the northern part there. And it was time to head south, but in kind of a weird, don't-stop-and-ask-for-directions kind of way. Spent several... didn't happen to him. It was all intentional, just so we're clear. It just looks like the way I drive. Jesus spent several months on the road heading toward Jerusalem. In this case, Luke didn't explain why Jesus sent the messengers ahead. It's possible, if not highly probable, Jesus sensed this new urgency and was more intense than ever about what would happen in Jerusalem and why it would happen, and he wanted more people than ever to know about it. But the people in that village did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, as much as anything, I see subtle selfishness in that. It was apparently clear to everyone in the village Jesus was thinking beyond them. But it seems as though they kind of wanted him to themselves. If faith in Jesus includes sharing him, apparently the Samaritans didn't want any part of it, which is a very dangerous way to think about Jesus. But it can be so easy to get lured into thinking that way. I mean, it's like singing one line from an old hymn with an unhealthy emphasis on the last word. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, 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 mine. If you haven't seen Finding Nemo, you're wondering where I'm coming from. It's crucial to have personal faith in Jesus. But I'm increasingly concerned about what often seems like a growing view that personal faith is the same as private faith. And there's this cultural force that almost demands we keep our faith to ourselves and that can further twist the tendency to think, well, now that I have Jesus, I'm really 
not too concerned about others finding him. But the reality is, if you have really seen Jesus and have surrendered to him and are getting to know him for who he really is, you will want others to really get to know him too. And that passion should grow over time. Now, the first disciples had passion, but as often was the case, it was misdirected. When his disciples, James and John, in one version specifically mentioned, saw the people's indifference to Jesus, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Not a great evangelism strategy. But try to see what was behind that kind of a question. And to see that, we need to understand Samaritans were just kind of Jews, but they had intermarried with Gentiles and they had come up with their own version of worship and their own temple and even their own scriptures. Does that sound at all familiar? That likely had at least something to do with why they kind of shrugged Jesus off. But traditional Jews didn't really know what to do with the Samaritans other than to at least avoid them, if not hate them, from a distance. And when almost any Jew traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem or back the other way, he, she, or they would go all the way around the region of Samaria. Bad feelings grew over the years, and it seems as though James and John had picked up on Jesus' increased passion and intensity, and they pointed it at the Samaritans. And that would have been something that would have come very naturally to them, and they apparently mixed that with the new power and authority they experienced at the start of chapter 9. However, Jesus, it says, turned... So he looked right at them when he spoke. Jesus turned and rebuked them. Jesus rebuked them, not the Samaritans. He rebuked James and John, two of his closest disciples. I don't know how, but somewhere along the way, it's like one of Charles Wesley's old hymns came to describe the only way some people see Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. In contrast, this week I wrote something potentially dangerous right here in the margin of my Bible. Holy Spirit, teach me to welcome Jesus' rebuke. I'm glad I wrote it in pencil because I might want to erase that. Holy Spirit, teach me to welcome Jesus' rebuke. Now, since Redemption Hill uses the English Standard Version, the ESV, I feel as though a little explanation is needed here because the ESV, like many versions, leaves out a part other Bibles include. Now, the ESV translators admitted the part they left out could have happened, but they didn't believe the evidence was overwhelming enough to include it. The part includes something Jesus did say, according to other versions of the Bible. 
the ESV translators, included something a lot like it in chapter 19. But I can see why Luke may have included a statement like it here in chapter 9, especially as part of the scolding Jesus gave his disciples after their outburst about torching the Samaritans. See, the King James Bible translators included at least some words they believe Jesus used in his rebuke here in chapter 9. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And the ESV includes Jesus saying something very similar to that a few months later. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now when Jesus said that, the second one, his attention was focused on one man who had been lost. Back in chapter 9, Jesus had all lost people in mind. And since this may be the last time I have the privilege of standing here before you, before we head back to Ecuador in November, I want to take a bit of a risk, particularly speaking to those of us who would truly confess a line in the old hymn, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I want to encourage or maybe challenge all of us who are formerly lost to think about the phrase, the lost. And, and think about something Charles Spurgeon said, and this broke me this week. He said, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. Again, for at least a moment, think about the phrase, the lost. Think about what you think. Think about what you say. Think about what you write, what you text about lost people. I'm not necessarily thinking about lost tribes in, say, Africa, although if the Holy Spirit wants to take your thoughts there, don't try to stop Him. But I'm thinking more about someone from just one of your typical days. It may be someone you've never met, but you see them or you listen to them often. Maybe someone you see in person every day. Maybe a politician. Maybe someone else who often ends up on the news. Maybe an Olympic athlete. Maybe the star of that TV show we know we probably shouldn't laugh at, but we do. Maybe a regular barista. Maybe a close friend or relative. But how do we think about them? What do we think? How do we interact with them? What do we say to them? What do we say about them? And how do we say it? And for just a few moments, allow yourself to consider the weight of the thought that he or she is lost in the way Jesus meant. 
And I don't know about you, but when I was working on this on Wednesday, I was hit hard by the reality that I need to create more regular space in my calendar for thinking these kinds of things and for asking the Holy Spirit if there's anything I need to be doing or stop doing as a result of what I think when I think about the lost. See, I believe those kinds of thoughts need to be part of our Christian walk, especially if we're willing to see ourselves in a story like the one we're looking at today. I don't know if you noticed this, but Luke didn't use the names of any of the people in the rest of this part of his report. He simply referred to someone, to another, and to yet another. And as we will see through one repeated word, this seems to be specifically for random, ordinary people wrestling with what it really means to really follow, follow, keyword Jesus. And I wonder if God intended it to, it to be kind of like insert your picture here if you've said what that first someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, that is much more than geographical. It's about asking the Holy Spirit to continue to transform me, making me approach life more like Jesus did, including when it comes to the lives of the lost, following His way, following His way of speaking, of working, of resting, of playing, of thinking, of being. Now, the first use of follow collides with a lot of what gets marketed and packaged and sold as Christianity all around us. I need to look into the mirror as I say that, as I consider and re 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 reconsider what following Jesus may really mean, because in this scene, Jesus made it clear following him may not look like a lot of what gets passed around in his name. He said, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Some of you may not get this, some of you may not like this, but does that sound like your best life now? This someone said to Jesus, man, I'm in. I'll follow you anywhere. I'll follow you everywhere. And Jesus basically said, really? Are you sure? Let me be clear about a few things about myself, because following me could mean some of them may also apply to you. Dude, did you realize I'm broke, I'm unemployed, I'm, I'm homeless? I'm about to become extremely unpopular, I'm going to get beaten beyond recognition, and then I'm going to get killed in the cruelest way known today. Now, Luke didn't say how this someone responded. I wouldn't be surprised if the Holy Spirit wants us to put ourselves in this someone's place and consider and reconsider and re-reconsider the possible implications of it. I mean, on the one hand, I'm re relieved the Redemption Hill teaching schedule pushes us on to verse 59, but on the other hand, I know I need to linger on what Jesus said and give some serious thoughts. what that may really mean. And I need to regularly come back to it. 
See, I'm going to quote one of the more prominent preachers from over the past decade or so in this country. I'm not going to mention his name because just mentioning his name can be so controversial it may distract some of you from what he said. And he, he said, what happens sometimes in Christianity is in an effort to get people to pray to receive Jesus, we lie to them. Oh, you're sick? Come to Jesus. He'll, oh gosh, I didn't want to look at Sarah. Come to Jesus, he'll make you healthy. You're poor, come to Jesus, he'll make you rich. You're sad, come to Jesus, he'll make you happy. Then often people say, you know what? It didn't work. I'm more broke than I was. I started giving him 10%. That didn't help. I was sad. Now I'm really sad because now I know how sinful I am. My awareness of my shortcomings has only increased. And I used to have a friend, and now I don't. Life's gotten really hard. I didn't get healed. I got cancer. This isn't working. See, that way of thinking is more prevalent in our culture than I think most of us realize, which might explain why I was jolted this week when someone sent me an article titled, Middle Eastern Christian Woman Tells Americans Not to Pray. Actually, it was against persecution. The woman featured in the article gave graphic illustrations of persecution and then added, What has encouraged me, encouraged my faith, encouraged my church, encouraged everybody Christian in the region, is that the church is increasing. We're not afraid or worried that the persecution will increase. God is working perfectly right now in the Middle East, she said. I heard an interview where a pastor wondered if God really is about to make America great. But under God's definition of great, using the kinds of things that woman described from the Middle East as truly great. Now whether that's the case or not, what Luke recorded in his sequel to this book is as true as ever. And and look at it in one of the versions of the Bible I often use in Quito. From one man, God made all the people of the world. Now they live all over the earth. God decided exactly when they should live, and He decided exactly where they should live. And God did this so that people would seek Him, and perhaps they would reach out for Him and find Him. They would find Him, even though He's not far from any of us. Now, getting back to where we are in Luke 9, the scene can seem at least a little strange because to one someone, Jesus painted that really harsh picture of what following him could involve. And then he turned to another someone and he said, follow me. (laughs) It was like, okay, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You follow me. That someone had likely heard what Jesus said to the first someone. What would you think if you were that second someone? I mean, Jesus seemed to try to talk a lot of people out of following him rather than given what most of us would consider good reasons for following him. I mean, look at the guy's response to Jesus' invitation. Let me first go and bury my father. 
And look at Jesus' response to that. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, a lot of scholars have offered a lot of opinions about what that was all about. Despite or maybe because of that, a lot of people have been very confused by it. And I was one of them for a long time. And let me see if I can squeeze a couple of decades of wrestling with this into just a couple of minutes. First, I don't believe the story of the first someone is supposed to make everyone who has a bed or a home feel guilty. I don't believe this second someone makes it automatically wrong to leave any kind of ministry to go home to a funeral or even to go to care for a dying relative. See, what used to really drive me crazy about what was going on with this second someone comes from the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. And closer to the other end of the Bible, actually from the cross, Jesus carefully and intentionally entrusted his own mother's care to John. And those are just two of the reasons I used to struggle with Jesus' response to this second someone. I understand it could be a lesson on priorities when it comes to following Jesus. For it to just be that just seems a little cold to me. And after digging into it as deeply as I'm able, it seems more likely the guy flat out lied to Jesus. And a big part of Jesus' response was calling him on the lie. You see, in that day, when someone died, there were immediate and strict and careful steps to take from preparation of the body to the burial to the mourning that followed. It could take days. It could take weeks. So if a father died, a son would have had this really crucial role in all of that. And I cannot imagine some guy whose father had just died out walking with Jesus rather than being at home, especially if the guy was only half-hearted about Jesus. So I've come to believe telling Jesus he needed to bury his dad before following would have been like me saying, I need to wash my hair first. It's like the guy got close enough to Jesus to see what following him was all about. And when he started to get a sense of what it would take and what he might have to give up, man, he bailed. And then Luke just kept on going because uh, another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. So in this scene, we have someone who seemed to have prematurely blurted out willingness to follow Jesus only to be told how hard it would be. And right after that, Jesus told someone to follow him with every reason to believe he wouldn't. And then there is this someone who had apparently heard the rest of the conversation and said he would follow Jesus, but added his own condition to what seems to have been his plan in the first place. Ironically, he called Jesus Lord. I mean, look at the words... I'll follow you, Lord, but... <laughs> Just think about what that says. I'll follow you, Lord, but... 
I believe he was basically saying, I'll follow you. Now let me tell you how that's going to go. Anyone here not said something like that at some point? Reminds me of a bumper sticker. It says things like, Jesus is my co-pilot. This cartoon really made me laugh. You see down there, he says to Jesus, don't mess with the radio. I mean, we're, are we like that or what? Come along, Jesus. No, 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 don't, don't, no. See, Jesus can't be our co-anything. That would clash with the whole idea of him being Lord. I'm afraid we have a continent of churches full of followers of a co-Lord, <laughs> of which I am the chief of all sinners. I believe truly calling Jesus Lord is what this whole scene on following leads us to. Over the past several pages here in Luke, we've repeatedly seen Jesus challenge his core 12 disciples to really ask themselves if they really trust him. Because it's really hard to really follow someone you don't really trust. It's really hard to really follow someone you don't really trust. And, and it's as though Jesus turned from his core 12 and in this scene looked right at any and all of us who would claim to follow him. And the Bible version we typically use has Jesus then saying to all of us, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That was actually from an ancient proverb, meaning you cannot plow a straight row looking backward, which means virtually nothing to most people in Los Angeles. Just so you know, it wasn't about taking a glance or two backwards. It was about trying to walk forward while looking backwards, continually. Um, you want a modern equivalent? Try driving all the way home today just looking in your rearview mirror. Steve Holmes says, no, please don't. Or, or <laughs> um, maybe try crossing the 405 at 405 in the afternoon on foot while only texting. I mean, walk across the 405 at 405 texting. See how that goes for you. This Bible version puts the verse less agriculturally. Anyone who lets himself continue to be distracted from the work I plan for him isn't fit for the kingdom of God. Key phrase in there, lets him, herself, continue to be distracted. I believe Jesus' point was and is he wants now followers. He wants our faith in Him to hit us where we are right now. And He wants our faith in Him to hit us where we are right now. And right now. 
I love living human biographies, which means I love asking people their stories. I get nervous when I ask someone to give me his or her testimony, and all he or she talks about is what the old hymn calls the hour they first believed. You talk, tell me about your relationship with Christ. Well, when I was seven, see, as vital as it is to trust what Jesus did back then as Savior, it's just as vital to trust what Jesus is doing now as Lord. I don't know where any of you will be at this time tomorrow. I do know Jesus' call to follow is just as real there as it is here. Jesus' call to follow is just as real with every step. But remember, it means following His way, not just His direction. It means following His way of speaking, His way of working, His way of resting. His way of playing, His way of thinking, His very way of being. And through 33 years in an earth suit, Jesus experienced how intensely challenging and tempting it can be for us humans here between Eden and heaven. And I believe that's why as His time in His earth suit wound down, Jesus set His face for all the events that would happen before the Holy Spirit would be unleashed in a way He had never been before and is still ministering here and now. And as I said at the beginning, as awesome as we may think it would be if Jesus were here in person to lead us, as hard as it is to believe, we actually have it better because the Holy Spirit is here with us and is in many of us longing to lead us so that we might follow well. And in following, either surrendering to the reality that we'll never fully get it or more deeply understanding that because of the Trinity, because the Holy Spirit, we also have the Son and we also have the Father. But the Holy Spirit has this unique ministry right now to bring them more real, to bring them more alive, and to lead us, to transform us. And Jesus, without the Holy Spirit, this is just a bunch of information. We plead for this to turn into transformation. And at risk of using a bunch of big words, please, Holy Spirit, bring more revelation, bring greater illumination so that the information would lead to transformation. And that information comes so often and so powerfully in song form. And I love the way that you nudge Joe to line up his next song because it can be such a great personal confession and a bunch of personal people making confession makes corporate confession and that's a huge part of what a body is. So Holy Spirit, would you continue to lead us, teach us, 
make us follow as we confess what's in this psalm. Thank you. Amen.